Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. So this week, Seriously is coming to you from a slightly unusual location, which is the tiny village of Bramfield in Suffolk. The reason for this is because Anna and I and several other people from the New Statesman are working at the Latitude Festival this weekend. All kinds of complicated logistical reasons have meant that we need to do our recording here. It is interesting to be recording from a cottage. I mean, we can quite literally see a thatched roof out of the window. It's very cute and some like pink roses. It's lovely. And we've been sort of going in and out of the festival all weekend. And so we thought we'd talk a bit about like what we've been doing down here and what we've seen. So on Friday night, I was chairing an event which had the slightly ambiguous title of The Politics of Hope. Which was in, I know, um, which was in the sort of literary arena, which immediately made me feel very inadequate because I've not written a book or indeed any kind of literature. But some of the people on the, um, on the panel definitely have. Um, so we had Suzanne Moore and Owen Jones and Georgia Gould, all of whom have written, you know, books and brilliant columns and, and we got very, very deeply into, you know, what is wrong with the left and the future of the left and all this kind of stuff, which, I sort of thought would happen anyway, but there was an astonishingly large audience for it. Like, people, all the people couldn't actually fit in the tent. Oh, it's quite a big tent for context as well. Yeah, I was really surprised. And there were lots and lots of young people who, every time anyone said the word Jeremy Corbyn, clapped ecstatically. Oh my god. Which was a bit off-putting. I I don't know know. if all our listeners will even know who Jeremy Corbyn is, but... uh... Yeah, well, we won't get into it here. The the New Statesman has another podcast for that, but um, uh, basically he's a a candidate for the Labour leadership who... um, He's been in the Labour Party a very long time. He's been an MP for 30-odd years or more, um, and he's very much seen as the kind of, like, grandfather of this contest. He's very much from the kind of... The politician of hope. The politician (laughs) of hope. And yet he's kind of all these young people are like filling up their Facebook feeds with how much they love him. It's it's incongruous. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, the main thing I wanted to point out from this event was, so when we finished, um, we did Q&A and everyone clapped and all the rest of it. And then we finished, a sizable number of young men wearing hats kind of rushed at the stage, desperate to get selfies with Owen Jones before he <laughs> left. <laughs> Good old Owen. Which was really, really funny. Lots of them were wearing like... Li- I don't know what the name is for that kind of hat, like the little fedora like tipped on the back of the head. Like a pork pie hat? Yeah, like a pork pie hat. <laughs> See, 
seems to like be... an Ollie Murs style hat. Yeah, that <laughs> seems to be like the look amongst <laughs> Owen Jones, Jones fanboys. That's nice. I'm sure he. I'm sure he dealt with it very well. He did, and um, and then he signed lots of books. There was um, like an hour long queue for people to get their books signed. So, wow. Um, that was the beginning of my festival. Um, but since then, we've done some. Done all sorts done of things, sorts, haven't yeah. we? Speaking of people signing, I've seen lots of cool people like just sat in the middle of a field with like a tiny table, just like signing books. Oh, You're like, I'm oh, the... that's Michael Rosen. That's nice. I meant to tell you in the in the crowd for Alt J, I saw the dad from My Parents Are Aliens. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so excited. <laughs> that's the best celebrity spot I've heard all week. That's so good. I mean, what I, know... I would have done in that situation, I don't know. Just giggled. I was think. completely paralysed. Like, he was on his own as well. He was just like drinking a beer, like watching the band, and I was like. I what mean, else has he been in? He's been in other stuff, he was like in, more serious stuff. He was also he was in the thick of it, wasn't he? He was in yeah. yeah that's the yeah, other yeah. thing I'm in your room, but but that's where my mind immediately meant. I saw the dad from my I saw him. Famous. The dad from my parents. That is absolutely one one of the great shows of our time. Mm, yeah, but actually, Lest we maybe, forget. Let, we should talk about that on a future podcast. Yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah. It's like really, really, really genuinely weird. Yeah, <laughs> so strange. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was very exciting. What music did we see? We saw. Um, Caribou. Yeah, we saw the fir- the headliners on on uh, Friday night, which is when I arrived slightly mm. behind Caroline, bedraggled from my half day at work. Um, and yeah, we saw Caribou, which was good. I think. I mean, when, when we were at Caribou, was the moment that I sort of realised that I was surrounded by people wearing like braces, and I was like, oh, these people are a lot younger than me. Yeah, the, the, the sort of sixth form of contingent at Latitude is pretty strong this year. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like, for, I think for a lot of people this is their like local festival um, and it looks like they're all having a wicked time to be fair. Um, so yeah Caribou was good but not someone that I was really like specifically here to see mm. like I wouldn't have bought a ticket for Caribou but I was pleasantly surprised. And then after that we watched Alt-J who I actually really like. Uh, I bought their first album when it came out on vinyl. Really? Yes. <laughs> like a geek. Uh, and was listening to that uh, in my second year at uni uh, quite heavily. And I remember listening to it in the summertime and like cycling my bike around Cheltenham, where I'm from, uh, in the sunshine. So it's a bit of a nostalgia kick for me. Um, but I have seen them before. I saw them the day after they won the Mercury Award, mm. uh, which I think was in 2013, in that November. Mm. And it was amazing. Tiny venue in Oxford. Everyone really buzzing for them because they'd won. They were really, obviously, over the moon. And the atmosphere was just electric. And seeing them here, also, to be fair to them, I haven't heard their second album, so there was less like stuff that I sort of knew yeah. and loved. But for me, it, was, it wasn't, wasn't as wasn't as good, sad to say. No, I found it odd how they, they sort of stood in a line with quite big gaps in between them and they didn't mm. really seem to be sort of enjoying themselves as a band. Mm, it's hard much. to interact on those enormous stages, isn't it? But Caribou did a better job of it because they all sat facing each other so they looked right. like a unit, I don't know, they looked like they were playing with each other. Whereas also the uh, you know the sort of roaming cameras they use at festivals to bring up the people mm. on the big screens? But they had some really weird, like, arty Instagram filter on it that meant they kept going black and white and sort of all oh, yeah, juddery yeah. and stuff. And I just thought, like, I'm not getting a strong sense of them visually. Yeah. Um. So All a yeah. bit much, perhaps. I saw Leanne Le Havis, who I was excited to see, but I actually think she was the best person I saw the entire time. She she was really, really good. Um. We, we sort of saw her sat down in the sunshine mm. with some ciders... And I know one or two of her songs because she does get a lot of radio play over here. But she was just effortless and very charming. And I wonder if that's maybe because she's a soloist, you know, she has obviously got a band. And she was interacting with them a bit, but maybe it's easier 
to be charming and effortless when, when you're, you're a, a soloist. Yeah. Person, yeah. She was she was absolutely excellent. My sister's here with us for the weekend. Together we went to see Songhoi Blues in the kind of woodland stage area. In the afternoon and ditto we sort of like sat down among the bracken and had a drink and they're they're a kind of like Malian, like African fusion rock thing. And cool. it was yeah, and it was it was really fun that they had a big crowd and they were really, really into it, but we were sort of slightly sat back from it so we could like enjoy their reaction. That was that was a really nice the kind of thing that I'm sure I, I definitely I think now would go and see them at a gig, an indoor gig, but I enjoyed them specifically in a festival way. Yeah. There was something about the sort of like sat down in the undergrowth having a drink while listening that really worked. And that is something this festival does really well. Like mm. they've got lots of nice little areas. There's a there's a place for lake swimming, mm. which is so lovely. Um yeah, the woods are really beautiful. When you're in the woods you sort of feel like you're in some weird like cult. That's <laughs> always enjoyable. Yeah, the, there was real whispers going round. You were you weren't sort of around at this point on la, uh, on Saturday night because there was a rumored surprise act. Mm who turned out to be Tom York, ah. and he was in the woods at the Eye Arena, and they were sort of very strict on numbers, because obviously as soon as people kind of realised that Tom York was playing, they tried to flock in. We did manage to get in, but we actually didn't see Tom York. We decided to go to something called the History of Black Music instead, which mm. was a DJ set, um, because we just kind of felt like, it's one in the morning, I don't really want to stand and cry to, like, radio sucks. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> I feel miserable, I'd rather, like go to a soul DJ mm. set and enjoy that. So, yeah, we, we we sacked it. We sacked it off. Given that I came here initially to work, I've had a really, really lovely time at the Latitude Festival in a way that I wasn't really banking on. Yeah. I wasn't really expecting... I didn't know what to expect from Latitude because over here, sort of, our festivals have quite specific brands, I'd say. Mm. So, like, Glastonbury is just, like, the massive party where everyone no matter their age just like goes for it and then you've got something like wireless that's much more rocky and then you've got like reading and leeds which is like your 16 17 year old first festival mm. and you like get absolutely wasted and watch you know kind of emo bands yeah and this i was like what is the vibe i don't really know i tell you what the vibe is definitely is flower crowns <laughs> i've seen more like, I mean, so I'm mainly familiar with these from like, seeing people photoshopping them on the internet. I have seen more <laughs> in, in real life flower crowns this weekend than the rest of my life put together. I think this is a festival. There's there's a weird thing where everyone dresses in their own unique whatever style seven days a week. And then they come to a festival and everyone wears denim shorts with a little bit of bum hanging out, a flower crown, glitter on their face and yeah. wellies. Yeah, it's... it's no it's matter where it is. oddly conformist, isn't it, actually? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I even saw... I saw a girl in one of the crowds who had a flower crown and, like, a sort of stuffed dove on her head. Uh, very nice. That one, I was I was quite... I was like, respect to you. You've taken that to the next level. They are sadly also selling, like, Native American headdresses. Are around. they? Yeah. Oh. oh, no. It's a bit grim. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a mixed bag. I've seen a lot of kids here as well, which is really really cute, and they like get little pulled kids, around yeah. in little trolleys, and they've yeah. got like little ear protectors on, <laughs> and it's just so adorable. So a more chilled out vibe, but also a very eclectic vibe because you know we've got the the kind of literature events that we're sort of nominally here to put on, and the uh, comedy turn. There's like a film screening turn. Mm. There's loads going on. It's really fun. Mm.
and now we're going to talk about Harper Lee's Ghost Setter Watchmen. Now, this book has been incredibly controversial on release. Basically, this is a book that was written before To Kill a Mockingbird, but is set 20 years later. The controversy surrounds the fact that it was quote marks, discovered very recently in slightly questionable circumstances, but that's not what we're going to focus on today. We're going to focus on the book as a reading experience. I'm here with Erica Wagner, who's a contributing writer for The New Statesman, and she just reviewed the book beautifully in our latest issue, and Caroline. What did you think of the book, Erica? Well, I was very surprised by it. Um, I was surprised back in February, I think it was, when the publication was announced, um, because I think we'd all got used to the idea that Harper Lee was never going to publish another book. She's 89. She's living in a care home. And then this was announced. I suppose most of us thought it would be the further adventures of Scout and Jem, if we thought anything at all, and Dill, um, who's the Truman Capote character in the book. So this book, which is set approximately 20 years after To Kill a Mockingbird, was really startling. The most startling thing is the portrayal of the heroic, wonderful, noble Atticus Finch as essentially a cast-iron racist. I think no one expected to see that. Yeah, I do think that's been the most, almost all reviewers, I mean, that was the the main thrust of your review, but everywhere that's been the thing that's really captured people's imagination. Do you think it's a good thing that she, not reworked because this was done before, but has made that character a lot more complex than just this sort of white knight hero figure? I think one of the reasons that To Kill a Mockingbird is not just a set text, but hugely beloved as a book, both popular and beloved. There are ranks and ranks of children all over the English-speaking world called Atticus, (laughs) Um, is in a sense because it is a book that allows us as readers to feel good about ourselves. It shows that there is a kind of justice in the world. There is not justice for the black man that um, Atticus defends in To Kill a Mockingbird. His end is not a happy one. But the idea of justice is preserved in Atticus, in his belief in defending an innocent man, and Scout's, the young Scout's, perception of this. This book, that book is set in 1935. This book is set 20 years later. Um, And Atticus's idea of justice seems to be very different in this book. And he's placed very much more in his context, in the 50s, in the Deep South, in the midst of the civil rights movement and the resistance to this movement. In a way, Atticus's attitude in this book, in which he is pretty keen to preserve the distinction between white and black, um, is not surprising. It would be very difficult, however serious his idea of justice, it would be very difficult for him to live in this community as a pillar of this community and believe anything else. I felt, in a way, that that role in this book is now placed on Scout, or Jean Louise. Is that realistic, do we think? That she would, in in having sort of grown up in the same context, I mean, there's much made of the fact that she moves to New York in, in this book. 
is there not sort of a similar thing going on where instead of Atticus being this kind of like quite noble figure who won't compromise um, on his principles, now scouts that figure? I found that really interesting, the way that she has sort of elements of her old childish impetuousness about it, the way the bit where she confronts her father about this uh, is is really sort of het up and she's so angry and she's so emotional. And that's part of how she feels this. She feels this as like a personal betrayal um, because her identity as somewhat as a, a white woman from the South is woven into her relationship with her father, that we are a white family in the South, but we're, we're one of the good, we're the good guys is in her head and has mm-hmm. been her whole life. And now she feels like this has been by finding out that he's not what she thought he was means that she can't be what she thought she was either. And I found that completely fascinating. Um, and also because of having read To Kill a Mockingbird when I think I was in my early teens, in a very sort of distant way, you know, she's part of me too. You know, it's part of what you imported as as a young girl. You you wanted to be like Scout. You wanted to be the tomboy in the dungarees and, mm. and not take the idea of growing up too fast too seriously. So I think that's possibly why people have reacted like they have, in that it's, it feels like it's tearing at you a little bit as well. Well, I think it's it's impossible to imagine what it would be like to read this novel without mm-hmm. having read To Kill a Mockingbird. For mm-hmm. those of us who have read To Kill a Mockingbird, who have grown up To Kill a Mockingbird, um, that placing that distance between it is, I you know, is I could not mm-hmm. do that. And your feelings about these characters depend so much on your prior knowledge of To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, you know, as for that being believable... Um, well, I think um, we can only guess how much is autobiographical, but Harper Lee did go off to New York. She saw a different world. Um, and I think for all this is an extremely flawed novel, mm. and indeed I hesitate to call it a novel. I feel that it is a draft <laughs> of To Kill a Mockingbird in some way. We don't know the provenance of this novel is very mysterious. Um, I think her feelings about what she describes in that very affecting sense of a complete loss of the idea of home. Um, I find that very convincing for all the flaws in the structure of the novel and the storytelling. Um, that rings very true to me. I do think it's probably much a novel, if we want to call it a novel, that's much more about that sense of loss than it is about race. Race, to me, in this book almost felt like a bit of a prop for daddy issues that she has her moments i think scout in this book there's a sort of a point where when she's talking with her uncle about why she's so sort of betrayed by this idea that atticus is 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 not kind of the guy she thought he was where she says something like well I, you know i don't want to go and marry a black guy or anything and it, it, that those kind of moments do bring it back to you that this is a book about family relationships not really a, a great social commentary on on race i not being American nor particularly well informed about American history, I had to go and look up what the Tenth Amendment is mm. um, and discussion about that, but it's about states' rights. Um, and she is, if if possible, she's kind of more uh, angry about that than her father is. She feels more mm. strongly that states should be free to make their own rules and not be imposed on by the federal structure than Atticus does. Um, but somehow she manages to square that with, but yet we should still not oppose equality and segregation is so bad whereas he is the other way around um which that's that's the kind of point at which it did start to feel to me a little bit like a kind of 
mouthpiece history lesson there's a lot of dialogue Absolutely. in it mm-hmm. um and that can feel a little bit drafty as you say and there's a lot of dialogue that is very unrealistic mm. uh political argument dialogue and you know you read it thinking well people don't really talk this way to each other she's working mm. something out for herself but i want i wanted to believe that atticus finch would talk that way yes although i think he t- you know he talks differently in this mm. certainly in this novel he talks differently than he does mm. in in to kill a mockingbird mm. I, yeah, I, I think similarly, I found it quite difficult to accept that so many people would be so interested in this internal struggle going on in, um, in Scout's mind the whole way through. So every, almost every conversation that happens in the book is people speaking to Scout about her relationship with her father and about her coming home. And that for me, I began to think they can't, surely they don't all care that much about this problem that she's having internally. Mm. And no one quite seemed to, question her well i don't know maybe this is maybe this is more accurate than i think it is but no one seemed that bothered about what she does when she's not there no one asked her that much about what she does in new york well and neither did she yeah um which i think is part of again part of the problems Mm. with it as a novel is it isn't very realized in those ways Mm. by far the most realized scenes um are the flashback scenes Mm. of Mm. when she's a child um, and those remind you of the strengths of To Kill a Mockingbird, I would say, with the exception of a really... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Extraordinary scene when she goes to see Calpurnia, her old housekeeper who plays... um, such a strong role in To Kill a Mockingbird, and is essentially, for complicated reasons, rejected by Calpurnia, and her whole way of life is. Um, and I thought that was a, a very uh, powerful and, and difficult scene. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I agree that it was the best bit of the book, because it, for, it, was, it was the only scene that really tried in any way to access like a black consciousness uh, when dealing with these issues. 
and Scouts not being able to fully understand why she might be rejected, I thought was probably incredibly realistic and incredibly complex. So yeah. It reminded me, um, it far exceeded a similar scene in the book for Help, um, which I don't know if either yes. of you read it, yeah, where um, a not dissimilar thing happens where um, a young white woman uh, goes to see the kind of black housekeeper who effectively uh, brought her up. But in that novel, which is quite trite and in not very good in many many ways um the exact opposite happens where the uh the her now elderly um former housekeeper kind of soothes her and comforts her and kind of buoys her up and and kind of mm. basically continues to serve her serves her emotionally even though she no longer serves her physically yes. yeah. which just is enormously stereotypical and kind of demeaning and not very accurate whereas the calpurnia scene took all of those decisions and reversed them and therefore is so much better for it. And she's given some agency and, you know, it's, it's a deliberate choice to say I'm not going to, you know, just... just I'm not going to make you feel better. I'm going to actually yeah. protect myself yes. and not concern myself with kind of like white guilt in mm. this scenario. And you're in my place. Mm. You know, Scout has come to her, to the quarters. Mm. And so it's, you know, Scout who is intruding, or Jean Louise as she is mm. now as an adult. I should say at this point as well that I really enjoyed reading this book. For all of its flaws, it, I, I did not expect to feel as happy as I did when I was reading it. There, was, there were flashes of Harper Lee's language that just pleased me so much. The, there were turns of phrase in it that just really sort of lit up in my head. And so um, I think we should... Please, Erica, tell us some more about the, the flaws you felt, but I should preface everything I say with that, that there was a huge sense of... Yes, I, en- I enjoyed reading it too, but again, I can't... I wonder if I would have enjoyed it so much if someone had just handed me this novel mm, by yeah. someone I'd never heard of. And I think um, it's an interesting exercise um, to compare the first two paragraphs, just the first two paragraphs of To Kill a Mockingbird and the first two paragraphs mm. of this novel. Um, and... Essentially, the first two paragraphs of To Kill a Mockingbird make you wonder what happened, make you need to read on. And um, you know about Jem's broken arm. You know that that was the summer that Dill decided to make Boo Radley come out. Who are these people? What does that mean? The first two paragraphs of this novel, a young woman is on a train. She's going home. It's very nicely written, but it doesn't make you want to keep reading. You know, the job of a novelist, unfortunately, is to grab your attention really quickly, generally. Um, and this doesn't do that. It, it's a book of vignettes. It's a book of descriptions, beautiful descriptions of life in the South in that time. But it doesn't really um, hold together as a novel. I, I felt, um, in a lot of ways, the experience of reading it really reminded me of reading fan fiction. Um, there's a moment where uh, Scout, I think, is talking to to Henry, and then it turns out Atticus is stood behind her, and it sort of reminds me of all those moments in sequels where the character comes back, and even though we we've sort of, we, we've been with Atticus the whole way along in this novel, that that feeling very much of you are, which is ironic considering this book was written before, but you feel like you really need that context to have any kind of relationship with these characters, and when you do, it makes it very sweet. But I agree, it's impossible to know what it's like divorced of context and I, I can't imagine it would be anywhere near as satisfying. It reminded me when when I went online to um order the book and I saw that and this was a week ago before it had come out that it was already the number one in fiction on Amazon. 
just on pre-orders, which I have since read that is uh, unheard of since Harry Potter days yeah. kind of thing. Mm. Um, actually, that put into my head that the J.K. Rowling, Robert Galbraith thing is, I think, relevant here, that, you know, uh, even though people liked The Cuckoo's Calling in a moderate way before they knew that that was a pseudonym for J.K. Rowling, as soon as you knew that it had that context of being by this person, it went astronomical. And I feel like that's kind of what's happened here as well. We know this is by Harper Lee, um, controversy around its provenance notwithstanding, uh, and therefore that's how we read it. We read it as To Kill a Mockingbird too. We don't read it for its own sake. Exactly. Mm. That's right. Um, and and it's, it is impossible, I think, to, to do that. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Caroline and Erica. Thank you. If you were listening last week, you'll know that I assigned Anna an episode of the Showtime cable drama Masters of Sex to watch, which she's never seen before, but I'm quite a big fan of. So, Anna, you have indeed now watched your episode of Masters of Sex. What did you make of it? I actually loved it. I thought it was great. Um, I now I watched it this morning in my bed in this little cottage, and now I just want to watch another one straight away. Ah, that's because uh, that's exactly how I felt when I watched it, and I didn't expect to at all, so I'm glad you did Yeah, too. neither yeah. did I. I was sort of a bit like... The premise is kind of bonkers and seems stupid. So the the premise of the show, it's based on real-life events. Two researchers, William Masters and Virginia Johnson, who were working in America in the, sort of in the 60s and 70s. And this particular show is based off a biography that was published a couple of years ago that was called Masters of Sex. I think that's where the, they took the name of the show from. That just chronicles the lives of these two really extraordinary and very very strange people mm. and and then they've made what is a kind of semi-fictionalized tv drama out of it it is based on the real events and the the two principal characters i think are quite close but quite a lot of the surrounding characters are either merged or changed or for the purposes of making it a good tv show when you sort of have that awareness the script writers are, are really like having fun with it like you can see the meeting room like oh my god yeah that would be so good there are a couple of moments in this when they're sort of establishing the, the, the bonkers idea that they're studying sex by like watching people have sex mm. essentially the study of sex is the study of the beginning of all life nine seconds I was faking if you really want to learn about sex then you're going to have to get yourself a female partner Dr. William Masters, he's the alpha dog of coaching medicine. I have a new study pending, one that requires a secretary not at all squeamish. Can you squeeze me in now? It's a whole new world that we're opening up. Groundbreaking. I don't like where this is going. I simply want to answer the question, what happens to the body during sex? You will be labeled a pervert. So where... The episode that, that Anna's watched, where it begins, is with uh, Dr. Masters just sort of trying to get his idea for a, a proper empirical study of how humans have sex off the ground, right? Absolutely, and he's just 
the basically his stumbling block the whole time is that people are like this is just you being a pervert and watching people have sex that's not science and him being like no it's science all i care about is science mm. michael sheen's very good at the thing this sort of like oh yeah we should say Mike- michael sheen welsh actor of shouting about the labor party in the nhs fame who we love who we love very much he's very popular in the new states he obviously. is he well, he recently wrote a fantastic piece for us a along precisely those lines but in this show he plays an american gynecologist who keeps saying yes we must watch people have sex because science exactly and i'm so bored in general of these characters that are men being like i care about my man thing not you wife which is obviously slightly unavoidable if you're going to do a program that's set in like 60s 50s Mm. late 50s early 60s because their third season has just started airing in america and I've seen some of the publicity stills from it, and we're very, very firmly in the 60s now. Okay. Like, all the women's hair and dresses is clearly 60s. Right, so I think in, in that kind of period, you obviously you're not going to escape the fact that there is, the, especially a programme that's about sex and about women and men and how they interact. It's a bit unavoidable, but I actually don't really know what to make of the character. I can't tell what his motivations are yet. I don't think it's as simple as it being just like, oh yeah, science, science all the way, science forever, because there's, I don't think this is too spoilery, I'm just, like, this is episode one, so I'm yeah. just going to go ahead and spoil you guys, watch episode one if you don't want to be spoiled now. The, the One of the key moments in the episode right towards the end is when he says to Virginia, who's his secretary slash project partner, I think the best thing we can do for this study is have sex ourselves. <laughs> is participate in, in it ourselves. With yeah. each other. Yeah, which... And his reasoning is very weird. It's something like, oh, we don't want to get excited around the other participants. So if we're having sex with each other, then that won't happen. But it's like he could have said we should just like have sex with our actual life partners. Yeah, well, it's interesting you point out his motivation because that is the complex heart of the show is that you never really know what he's thinking or really completely why he's doing what he's doing. And that's the kind of eternal mystery is like, why? Why is he behaving like this to her? Like, what what is going on? Yeah, that's that. I'm already because when it when it started, uh, this episode, I, I was kind of hoping that it wouldn't be this setup in almost every detective drama mm. or whatever it is, where it's these two strong characters, man and a woman, that work together in an interesting power dynamic and they fancy each other and you're always well, mm. like, waiting for them to actually have sex. They didn't do that at all in this programme. Ginny, or Virginia, has a, another guy on the side. Mm. William, Dr Masters, is having his own troubles with his wife, so it's not really about their relationship so much at the beginning, and mm. then suddenly at the end of this episode he's just like, yeah, we should have sex. But, and I but just... in a way that's very strictly bound by our like professional lives, it's yeah, part he doesn't... of our research. Yeah. Absolutely, he doesn't make any eye contact with her when he's proposing mm. this, you know, he's just like looking over his files. And so you are like, wait, what what are you doing? <laughs> I can't tell. And that's made me want to watch the next one so badly, more even than all the like hot people taking their clothes off and, and having sex on camera, which is obviously mm. a big draw of the show. Yeah. And we should also say the character of Virginia Johnson is, I think, fascinating in a completely different way because yeah. she is a kind of incongruously modern woman Absolutely. Um, in this scenario. In the, I can't remember if it's actually in the first episode or if it's very near the beginning when she explains that like I've I've never really seen other women think of love and sex as completely intertwined and I've just never really got that. I've always seen them as completely separate, which is a really revolutionary thing for yeah. someone of her time to say. There's a moment where, because obviously Dr Masters is quite keen, he's desperate basically to get someone on board who's going to help him, who's a woman, because mm. he's constantly asking questions like, but why? Why on earth would a woman fake an orgasm? Mm. And you're like, oh god, babe. <laughs> like, and there's babe. a brilliant bit in that um, where he asks that question and she just looks at him. Oh, I, I can't, 
I can't even. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's a great moment where sh he says, well, "Why do you why do you want to do this?" And she said, basically made it very clear that she she was always on board with this project from the beginning. And then he says, "I picked you for this job." She said, "If that's what you need to tell yourself." Yeah. <laughs> She's also Janice from Mean Girls. Yes, that's the other thing with completely different hair. Complete much slicker, obviously, yeah. and uh, yeah, but she's brilliant. She's a strong woman without being a cardboard cutout. There's a depth to all the characters, I think, which is the show's strong point. And of course, as you mentioned, we shouldn't uh, skirt around the fact that there are just some really hot people taking their yeah, clothes off as well. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I do wonder, like my my boring hat on says, would there really just be all these like really fit people just like waiting around in this hospital? Like I would quite like to see, I, I don't know how it develops, but I'd quite like to see some like normals having sex. Yeah, there is that every, it's, it is, it is like that sort of teen movie thing where, you know, suddenly it's the prom scene and everyone's a professional dancer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah, is like... a bit like that. It's like, oh, suddenly everyone takes off their like boring doctor clothes and oh wait, you are basically a swimsuit model. <laughs> there is that. that. I feel yeah. like that's just American TV for you, right? That's just. Maybe, but like, Michael Sheen is kind of like this. Obviously, he's a he's a good looking guy, and we all like Michael Sheen. But he's not the typical American strong jawed, but handsome. I feel like he's getting a pass in this scenario because he's like he's a serious doctor. actor. Yeah, exactly. Um, everyone else is just really, really hot. Yeah, I would like it because obviously then you get other characters. So, for example, just yeah, some other context for the show is that Doctor Masters is a gynecologist mm. and he does really good work with like C sections and infertility and mm. things like that. And he basically saves a woman's life and she she's black, overweight, and you're like, oh, here's like a person who doesn't look like everyone else, but obviously she's not involved in like the sexy plotline. Yeah, she no. has to be the baby plotline or yeah. the like race plotline. Yeah. She's not allowed to enter that space. Incidentally, actually, the show is quite good on race. That becomes a much, much bigger theme. That would be more as, interesting. As, it, as it goes on. What makes the character of Dr. Master so interesting is that he's really progressive in some areas. Mm. So like, he just doesn't seem even to conceive of the idea of why why a woman shouldn't enjoy sex like he does he's right. really, and he's very progressive on like race and where who he'll work with he'll work with anyone who's interested and all that kind of stuff yeah. but then on like, gay rights he is unbelievably regressive that was a really good moment actually because there's, there's one moment in the first episode that touches on homosexuality like as we were watching it I felt well obviously you have to kind of stick to the idea that this would have been an incredibly heteronormative mm. study because it's one of our first studies of sex but even in the first episode they, the, the, the first woman who he's managed to persuade to be part of the project is a prostitute who's paying mm. to wank off and like have sex with some of her clients and things like that while he's watching and uh he says to her like well you know i haven't really got anything for you and she was like have you got any you know mags and he was like well yeah with naked women in mm. and she's like yeah that's good because i'm actually not straight and it's like this very it's, yeah it's a, even though it's only just touched on you do need that in the first episode because otherwise it is like oh we're not even going to talk about the idea that there might be gay mm. people at this mm. time yeah, well, so I'm glad you enjoyed Yeah, Pass I can't Sex wait to watch the next one. I, yeah, I really hope that I can just like whiz through it now. Mm. I need to get a DVD. So, for next time, yeah. what are you going to give me? So, I thought we'd do a film this week. So, I'm going to give you Obvious Child, which is Jenny Slate, and it was dubbed the abortion comedy. Okay. Basically, it's about a woman who gets pregnant after a one-night stand and gets an abortion, and she's also a stand-up comedian. And hilarity ensues. <laughs> okay, right. Not a topic that people often do comedy about, so at least not good comedy. Uh, yeah, I think it was a little bit controversial in its release, but um, I, I think, I have a feeling it will win you over, Caroline. <laughs> If 
the nightingales could sing like you, they'd sing much sweeter than they do. For you've brought a new kind of love to me. So we've had a few more messages from you this week. Uh, Marcel Legan said. Uh, Loving the podcast. Is that the equivalent of retweeting praise? Should I not say that? Um, <laughs> thought the Sense8 chat was maybe a bit spoilery, though, uh, but I haven't seen it yet, so maybe I've got it wrong. I don't know, I didn't really think that we had any spoilers. <laughs> yeah, we were actually saying that we, we weren't sure that we'd done that good a job of explaining what the show was about. But um, I sort of take his point, though, that it is difficult to talk about quite a kind of plot-driven, thrillery show without giving some things away. Um, but if you haven't seen it, I don't know if that would put you off from seeing it. I think it's also like a Netflix age thing where like now that everything's available all in one go with it when it comes to a lot of TV mm. shows it's quite hard like I, I've been watching I mean I hope this doesn't get a bit too meta but I've been watching a lot of different media organisations tr- trying to figure out how to play it so somewhere like Vulture that do really good episode by episode recaps have to decide how far away they're going to be from each other and I think they've only just finished doing like the Orange is the New Black episode by episode recaps when actually almost anyone who's going to watch the series has seen the whole series now but at the same time if you put them all up straight away it's just massive spoilers for everyone. And presumably people are less likely to read I don't know, like 10,000 words of recap rather than like exactly. a thousand words a week or whatever. Yeah. I don't know, but maybe they are because like I think people said that we wouldn't watch hours and hours of TV all in one go. And yet and, we do, yeah. And we do, so. Um, yeah, but I suppose what the kind of rule of thumb that we've tried so far, and obviously we're very new at this, is that we want to be able to talk about plot-driven shows, but we also don't want to put people off from watching them all together. So I suppose we're, we're trying to find a balance between the two. So yeah, also I've had um, some tweets about our Arnold Schwarzenegger segment from last week from Nathan Dytum, uh, who says, Enjoyed Arnie discussion this week, reminded me of, I think, Matthew Sweet interview with Arnie and Sly on The Expendables, where Sweet pointed out that they represented Reagan individualism in the 80s and are now unionised, both laughed and agreed in smart ways. Um, Which is kind of, because Yo was saying that, wasn't he, that, you know, Arnie has very effectively moulded himself to the political circumstance of whatever time his movies are being made in. Um, And I guess that The Expendables was, I don't know, the kind of 2000s collectivism we're we're back we're back to make more money together than we would separately kind of situation isn't it absolutely yeah i think that's um i remember people sort of saying that kind of thing at the time with that movie because it was sort of yeah all about the clash of the past with the present um so yeah i think that's a good point um and then yeah nick message saying if you like cereal you'll love seriously pod i mean a controversial opinion so <laughs> you decide. So we said we'd do our best Sarah Koenig impressions and Ian Alexander tweeted us to say that it could be a regular feature, seriously in the style of next request Ira Glass. I'm not going to do an Ira Glass impression because it would be awful for all involved. I'm not even sure I can do a Sarah Koenig impression. Does she have, uh, having rashly promised that on Twitter, does, <laughs> does she even have a particular vocal style? I just feel like she's like a American woman voice. I don't know. I think she has an Ira Glass influenced style, doesn't really? she? Of, like talking fairly like straight, like to a friend style of podcast oh it's quite an informal sort yeah, of yeah yeah um but yeah so uh so, sorry i think i can do a better one when i was actually listening to it but i feel like that was well six it is ago. it is apparently coming back at some point so maybe we'll give that a go when when it does <laughs> wait with bated breath listeners it's coming <laughs> Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Anna. And I'm Caroline. 
You can find us on iTunes. Our Twitter is at SeriouslyPod. And if you want to send us an email, we're SeriouslyPod, S-R-S-L-Y, pod at gmail.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.